Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nurtured Foundations online course. The Nurtured Foundations course is a podcast style course to teach parents how to start solids with their baby. Are you a parent with a child from zero to 24 months? Well, then this online course is for you. This is a comprehensive course that empowers parents to start solid foods in a confident and safe way and raise adventurous and healthy eaters from the start. We cover topics such as when to start solids, the most nutrient-dense foods to feed your babies, recipes, troubleshooting, how to prevent picky eating, and so much more. If you want information on this course, go to nourishthelittles.com and click on the link, Nurtured Foundations Online Course. You can also find a link to the Nurtured Foundations Online Course on my Instagram bio. Click on the link and look for Nurtured Foundations Online Course. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. We are so glad to be back here today recording. And today we have a very very special guest, someone we're both super excited to interview. Corey and I have talked a little bit about this in our previous personal episode, but we wanted to reiterate again our purpose behind starting Modern Ancestral Mamas, which was we wish that there had been a podcast like this when we were young, first-time moms. Our mission at Modern Ancestral Mamas is to offer ancestral wisdom for the modern mom. And we know the importance of how our ancestors ate and lived and raised their children. And our goal is to bridge this gap and make ancestral living practical and attainable for the modern mom or parent. And this is why today's guest is so important. In our opinion, she is the modern-day Weston A. Price, traveling all over the world and actually living and studying the few traditional cultures that are still present in today's world. She was a presenter at the Wise Traditions Conference in Kansas City last October, and Corey and I knew that she we had to have her on the show. So without further ado, our guest today is Mary Reddick. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much for having me. I loved meeting you at the conference, and I'm so excited to talk about all of these topics today. We were chit-chatting before we pushed record, and the things that we have that we want to talk about, it, the list just kept growing. So we may have to make this a, a two-parter at some point. We may have to get you back on to talk about some other things too. But let me give this really short bio so we can move on with the show. So Mary is an ancestral nutritionist and experiential anthropologist who specializes in neuromuscular disorders, infertility, hormonal disorders, and disabling chronic diseases. She can regularly (laughs) be found endangering herself in the untouched corners of the world to learn from and distill the, the wisdom from the last remaining traditional cultures. 
that is a mouthful, but it's also very descriptive. And <laughs> clearly that gives us a lot to talk about. Yeah. I don't know if, if any of our listeners were able to hear her presentation at the conference. Man, it was so interesting and lots of fun stories from your travels. And if you didn't get to, which I didn't get to, to see your talk, unfortunately, I missed it. But if you didn't get to see it like me, then you can get the recordings from the conference and go back and listen to it. All right, let's go. Okay. So Mary, just so you know, we start off every episode with a question related to the topic of the show. And so today is kind of a little bit of a different question, but basically I'm wondering, have you ever had a moment when you felt that you've been amongst family or community and your connection with your family and community has transcended whatever food it is that you're eating? So has there ever been a moment in which you felt that the connection with the community is goes above and beyond like the food that you're being served, whether that food is nourishing or not? I, I would say almost always, to be perfectly honest, almost always, uh, whether it's with my family or whether I'm with the, the tribal communities, the indigenous communities, I, there's a different way that you digest when you're with people and when you feel safe and when there's eye contact and hugs and there's the familiar smells and, and uh, you know, the factors of fire and earth and all those things together. So, and I realize that's an unusual answer, but I, I really, you know, one of the gifts of going through the illness when I was younger that I got was a real presence. And so when I'm with someone, I tend to really be with someone and I don't tend to think about the food. So, so I eat a lot less when I'm with people. I have to actually watch it. I tend to come back from the trips a lot thinner, unintentionally, those kind of things. So yes, um, I'm sorry to give you such a g- generic answer, but really almost always. Do you want to answer, Corey? Okay. I, <laughs> I mean, I kind of feel the same way. I think that almost always, especially in times of you know, family meals, like I can think of at my grandparents' houses and places where you just, I'm just surrounded by people that I really do love and really do connect with. I can very much remember times of just, you know, the food was great, but it it was not, it's not the important part. And I think that that's almost every, that's what we try and do at our, in our house too. And it took me a long time to get there because there was a lot of time where I was very stressed out about what my kids were eating. But once I was able to kind of let go of that the and and focus on having a peaceful and joyful mealtime, you know, everybody, it, things were just better in our home almost, almost all like the whole day rather than even just the mealtimes. Yeah, I agree with you, Corey, in that that has been something that I've personally had to work on for some time in the earlier years of my kids' lives. We were isolated from family. We, we were not around family and it hasn't been until recently in the past three or four now going on four years that we are again in the same city as family members. And that comes with a lot of different ways of eating. And that's been really hard for my over-controlling self to let go of. And I would say in the past maybe year or so, I've really witnessed 
the importance of, you know, letting the kids be with the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles and just feeling that connectedness and that unity with the family members and not stressing about what they're eating and knowing that the connection is more important than the food that's on their plate. So yeah, I, I completely understand where both of you, what both of you said and agree with it. (laughs) I think we're in a really, uh, a very difficult time right now for families. There's no question because uh, families are very isolated right? Uh, Moms, dads, and kids are typically very isolated from extended family. And the reality is our nervous system does so well around extended family. It really relaxes. You can use an HRV monitor to see it for yourself. You can look at the studies, but uh, even when it's not it might not even be people that you like that much, but if they're very familiar, the nervous system feels better than when you're alone. So, so I think you're, I think you're headed in the right direction. I, I mentioned this book to you at the conference and I don't know if you were able, if you have looked at it at all yet, but I, I just think that both of these conversations go hand in hand and we have not interviewed this author yet. She is on our list for this year to interview, but the book is called Nourished. And it's by Deborah McNamara. And pretty much the premise behind the entire book is this importance of safety and relationship over food and talking about how to establish that within the home and how if you don't have that first, it doesn't matter what you're feeding your family and it doesn't matter what your kids are eating, that that's the most important thing. And she even goes so far as to say, are you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? I am. Yeah? Yes. Okay. So for, for the listeners who might not be familiar, it's, this is psych 101 and basically it is a pyramid similar to the food pyramid. And at the bottom of the pyramid, Maslow believed that the most important I don't want to say things, but the most important things that humans need are shelter. And I might, I might get this wrong. I might get the order wrong, but we need, first we need food for, then we need shelter. Then we need love. And then I believe the top at the very top of the pyramid is self-actualization or um, something like that. And so she goes on to say that she thinks the pyramid needs to be flipped and that what we need first is relationship. And the last thing that we need is food and shelter. Yeah. Which is very, very bizarre for any traditional, um, I guess, psychologist out there and things like that. It's it's forward thinking to say, no, first we need relationships and connection. I would fully agree with that. I fully. It's imperative. And it's even more so imperative today with all of us living in our own rooms and in our own worlds. But it's really quite imperative. Yeah. Anyway, I just went on a tangent there. <laughs> we need to. <laughs> okay, so Mary, can you give us a little bit, a little bit of your background? You know, the work that you're doing, your previous health struggles. I know you mentioned that, just so we mm-hmm. can have a little bit of a baseline to go off of with your story. Sure. So I'm a neuromuscular specialist in uh, nutrition, the microbiome. I specialize in ancestral diets. So uh, my private practice was closed for the last four years. I actually just opened it because I miss it. 
Uh, I miss that connection, actually, what we're talking about. But, uh, but I've been working on about 16 other projects. So I've been out in the field for about seven years researching with indigenous societies that uh, really have, have truly not been colonized. So they, they have not been touched by modernization and they do not have any of the health issues we have. They all eat differently. They all have different lifestyles, but they have threads in common. And so I've been almost with a mania going and running around to go see them because I'm seeing how quickly they're getting modernized. And so I really wanted to document that, especially with a bit of video, not like I'm not a documentarian. So don't, don't wait for that folks. But, but just so that it's in records, because, because if people saw what I've seen and, and the normal uh, exceptional health that they have compared to what we accept as health, people would be blown away actually. And seeing as these societies are modernizing and becoming like us with our health issues, I felt that was very important. So I put my my practice on hold. My private practice, I worked with everything from infants to pregnancy to people that were over 100 and all conditions. And I think that's actually what made me a strong practitioner because I, I could see how the different conditions related and uh, what what could be done in each, each situation. Uh, but I've never been rigid. I teach a lot of different diets when I'm in private practice. So that's part of it. And then I do writing. I do medical writing and research. And I have a foundation. I, I do a lot. I do a lot of different things, really. What is your foundation? Oh, it's called cowsforkids.com. It's really a project, uh, but I am transitioning it into a foundation. It was an effort when during COVID, I noticed that a lot of nonprofits were coming in to the indigenous regions and bringing things like cell phones and things like this. They were modernizing much faster. And I wanted a way to help the communities protect their knowledge and their wisdom and their health. And so it's basically like a Kickstarter for each different village, if they're living traditionally, for them to keep their traditional foods in the schools. Because when the kids go to the government mandated schools, they're fed mm -hmm. uh, really horrific food, which I, I'm sure many people wouldn't be horrified by, but anyone who studies this stuff would. And so I, I know from what I've seen that, or I can project that that generation is going to have very different health. And so I wanted a way to bring that, those traditional foods into the schools so that the kids were not impacted and they could have the same kind of health as their parents. Because these are traditional societies, they're all self-sustaining. So it's really not a charity. It's really just getting uh, cattle if they're doing that diet or this. And then those animals have babies and it's self-sustaining. But it, it's something to get it started. Because in so many of these communities, uh, the animals are their source of money. And so a family is not going to just like donate cattle to a school or anything else. That's their, that's their savings. And so it gets it started they perpetuate. So that's, that's what that project is. Why did you start doing what you're doing? Oh, by accident. It's, yeah, it was by accident, really. Yeah, I didn't have any interest. Okay, in how, do, how do you accidentally do this? <laughs> I know. No. Health was the only class I didn't like growing up, actually. I had a sister. Oh, the irony. I know. I had a sister who always knew she wanted to be a doctor, and that was something I always knew I didn't want to be. I knew I didn't want to work in healthcare. I knew from the time I can remember I wanted to work with marine animals and be a marine scientist. So that, that was always the trajectory I was going with. And honestly, I wanted to be a mom. That, that was the biggest thing that I wanted to do and paint and these kind of things, but marine biology. So I was studying in a field station, and I got an infection 
that went into my brain when I was, gosh, what was that, 20 years ago? More, almost 25 years ago. And it left me with severe damage in my nervous system, the hypothalamus pituitary, which led to a condition called dysautonomia or POTS is a common version of it. It's an umbrella term for many different nervous system disorders that trickled down into complete disability uh, with organ damage all over the body, nerve damage, full disability in bed. Like it, it really went on for a very long time, about 12 years and ended up reversing it through traditional diets after trying a lot. Honestly, I tried, we had done Western medicine for about seven years. And then when I was pretty close to my kidneys giving up, we started looking in other areas and stumbled upon a lot of the, really the anthropological medical books from the 1800s. So I would, I would count uh, Weston A. Price's book in there as well. He was one of the first ones I stumbled on. It's really 1900s, but in that range. And I saw how healthy people were in these regions of where these doctors were going. And I saw what they were eating and they were eating the opposite of what we were being told to eat. I had nothing to lose at the time. So I was like, well, let's try it. And so it took about five years of experimentation, lots of lifestyle things. It was not just diet. It was a lot of lifestyle, a lot of mental work as well. But it did pop into remission finally at year 12. And then I was so fascinated when I went into remission with such a wildly expensive health condition just by changing my groceries and my lifestyle that I went back to school to study, to study this formally. And then I opened up a private practice again, thinking, uh, you know, really from Ohio. So DC and then Ohio, no one does diets there. Maybe they do now, but it was like a sin to do a diet. So, so I really didn't think it would be a career and I thought it would be a hobby and really almost right away, it pretty much blew up. And then that was my life trajectory from then on out, how I got to the tribes, probably wondering about six years into remission, I kind of woke up to the fact that I could maybe do whatever I wanted now. I'm healthy. You know, <laughs> what do I want to do? Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. And so that was the first thing I thought of. I, I really wanted to go see if any of these regions still existed and if they were healthy. And I, I genuinely didn't think they would be there or be healthy uh, because it had been almost 100, 200 years in some of these instances. But on my first trip, the first community I went to was in the peak, peak health on a level I, I could have never anticipated. And so then I had the bug and I didn't stop for the last seven years. Uh, that's, that's pretty much how I got into it. Out of curiosity, can you describe what peak health looks like? Oh, I can. Good question, Christine. You know, a lot of things that we take as normal are, are not normal. And I didn't know they weren't normal either. Everything from having headaches these folks have never had headaches or, you know, cavities is an obvious one probably for your crowd, but no eye issues, no arthritis, no anxiety, no depression, no mental health issues at all, zero, no fatigue, no anger. I, these people, it's like the, the regal version of a human, very calm, collected, joyful, and loving is what you see. The women don't have any fertility issues at all. There's no cramping with periods. There's no hormonal issues during menopause, the switchover, that perimenopause that so many experience does not exist. And we can, we can go into why. A lot of that is, is lifestyle in addition. They have no death in childbirth. 
They don't die in childbirth. It's very quick. Uh, childbirth is very easy. And uh, they can have children into late years. So some of the communities I go to, nearly like late 50s is when they stop having children. And they don't have a lot. So yeah, I, know, I was blown away by that too. They, some of the communities will typically have like two to three children. They know how to time it. Right. And others, if they're more stationary, let's say they're agriculturists. So maybe they raise grains and vegetables and animals. They typically are the ones that have very large families, like 16 children. <laughs> right. Eight, eight. Plus. Okay. So like nomads or people who are living nomadically are not having lots of children. In my experience with all the communities I've been to, no, it's usually two to three would be more normal. I guess that makes sense if you're trying to pack yeah. everybody up. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, just taking a road trip is hard. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, you end up leaving one or two or three or four behind. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and hunter-gatherers are the same. They usually don't have a ton of children. They'll have usually around three, with the chief maybe having four to five. But, but that would be the most, usually. It's, it's really more the agriculturist that have a lot of children. And is spacing really a thing? Yes and no. So spacing kids. Yeah, I I do recommend it, uh, especially in our day and age, but, and our lifestyles and where we live, if if it's possible. But they're not, they do most things with a grace and an ease and just a, a natural way of going about things. So it's not so mental. It's it's not like a, a decision, like we're going to space it. It's more like, well, the body needs time. The baby needs the milk. You know, these kind of things. It, it's more natural. I, I don't know if I can put that into words. It's a very good question. But it's it's not something, like if I, when I ask them these questions, they don't know how to answer, right? But if I change the question and get at like, when did you have your first child? When did you have your second? When did you have your third? And I ask everyone in that community, it's a pattern. And so you can see the spacing. And then I can take that and be like, so you have children about every year and a half, every two years or three years, whatever it is for that community. And then they'll say, oh yes, because. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just processing it and realizing that I have thousands of questions. <laughs> so I'm just trying to categorize that. So we, we, one of the emphasis of this particular episode that we want to do with you is to talk about family, community, what we're, you know, both Corey and I are so curious to know what does that look like in these cultures and, you know, what, what are these structures like and how is that different than what we have currently in modern day is there anything that we can do to maybe emulate a little bit of what these traditional cultures are still doing? I don't know. Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that topic. And it's one of my favorite things about going to these communities. The The family structure is when you witness it, it, it feels so different than what you might think of coming in with our current culture. It's incredibly loving and it, for me, and I, I realize we would all have a different answer for this. For me, it is my heaven. It is like my ideal, right? So I'm sure there are a million people out there that would 
vomit at this idea. But I, I just love it. Uh, the women are the caretakers and the nurturers, and they have the children, they do some of the cooking. They're the social glue, and they're very loving with each other, so they're never alone. They're always with the other women, which is typically their sisters, their best friends. Can you just imagine here, like, if we just got to hang out all the time and our children could play, and that was our, like, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. And everyone's happy because the babies aren't crying and they're sleeping. Like, it, it's really lovely. And it, it's an incredible community. And the relationship between the husbands and the wife is one of incredible respect and joy and love and tenderness. It's like when you see, you know, that on those rare occasions, you see an old couple who have been together who, who genuinely love each other and they kind of nuzzle into each other. It's like that. It's very sweet. It's very sweet. And my, you know, what I've, my perception from visiting all these communities and then in relation to what I've seen and in our, our culture is that it comes out of the respect from divided responsibilities. So the men have very different responsibilities than the females. And because of that, there's a lot of respect given, right? Because the men know that they're not doing the things that the female does. And the female knows that she's not doing the things that the male does. And so they have this incredible respect for each other and appreciation. And I, I do see that. And I'm lucky enough to know some very, a lot of my friends have wonderful marriages and there's a lot of wonderful marriages in my family as well. And I see the same thing. Whereas in our culture today, I see a lot of, with the families I work with, just overrun stress on both sides, the male and the female. They're both trying to do it all. The, there's not a real division of labor. So for a lot of people, you know, they come home and they see dishes and they're like, ah, oh, the dishes aren't done. I have to do the dishes. But there's not like a clear role as to who's doing the dishes and who's not. And so there's a lot of resentment that gets built up and exhaustion. Right. And so I, I see a completely different picture with this. Now, for the men, they really enjoy getting up and providing. Right? They're very proud of providing and they love doing that. And the community loves it that they, you know, reciprocate and that, that they're quite uh, happy about the providing. And so there, there's a lot of joy and respect and appreciation. And that goes into elderly years. Because as they age, I know one of the big questions I always get is, don't they die when they're 35? No, they do not, folks. They live longer than us. Uh, typical is 100 to 120 is really very normal until modern foods are brought in. And they do that with excellent mental acuity and, and really perfect physical health. They can hike faster than I can and, uh, and, and dance faster than I can without getting breathless. I'll be out of breath. So, so they really respect the elders, because imagine you have someone, let's just take 80 or 90, who has been experiencing life for so long, so a lot of wisdom, and they have the mental sharpness to be able to distill that, right? And so there's, there's just respect through the whole community. And because there's not a culture of lack in any of these areas. Uh, they're not lacking food. They're not lacking really anything. Uh, they're quite abundant. There's not that chronic daily stress either. And then they have the inner joy from making all the feel-good chemicals. They're doing all the lifestyle and the dietary things to, to get those produced. And so, and so it's a really beautiful structure. 
I would say. It does sound very much like a utopia. Yeah, that's how I feel that it is. It feels like it feels like that when I'm there, like with the children. I can't I can't even handle the children. <laughs> they just want to giggle all the time and snuggle and be held. I mean, it's really it's really quite precious. And I I don't know what else it could be called other than utopia because it it seems to be what everyone is searching for in our culture. You know that connection that love, that joy, and that purpose, right? We're, in our society, everyone seems to be searching for a purpose outside of themselves. These people never ask that, right? They're never thinking like, what should I do? Should I go and do this job or that job? No, I, they don't think about it once. Their purpose, their is it because their purpose is their community? Their purpose is serving one another, essentially? Yeah, yeah, you could definitely look at it that way. That That is very possible. I think they're very present. You know, they're just very present. And I don't know that they would say that their purpose is presence, but that, that seems to be the what I've seen. Not in it, something they have to cultivate and be intentional about, but that is kind of how they're living. Oh, okay. I just need to ask a question about you know, because Western cultures are very egalitarian and it seems to me like what you're saying is these cultures are not living in that sort of way or is that is that not the case? Are they still do, – do women and men hold the same value in the community or are they – because I'm not trying to say that just because people – take on traditional gender roles means that they're not an egalitarian family yeah. or community or something like that. But I'm, I'm just curious if it's, if it, if there is, if the value of, of each other is equal. I would say it's, it's kind of hard for our brains to conceptualize to be mm, yeah, okay. really, that makes because sense. We, it really is because we have these perceptions of the past and then we have our experience of the present and, and we're real messed up and confused. Right. And in these cultures, they just don't have any of that. There is no lack of value for any person in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone is valued. Everyone is respected and everyone is considered. And so you could come from our viewpoint and say, uh, the men are in charge, but the men wouldn't say that, and the women there wouldn't say that either. It, they're very equal in value, very. And and really, I, I can't think of a single exception, but if I do, I'll let you know. It's not just with gender roles. They don't think individually, period. They don't think individually. So it doesn't matter if I'm with hunter-gatherers or with agrarians or with nomads. They don't think individually. So if I bring a gift, immediately the first person I hand it to barely looks at it before they're dispersing it to everyone, right? Nothing is yours. uh, And your value isn't yours. It's not like a separate individual, um, I get this and you get that. It doesn't exist. Uh, They think like a beehive you know, all together. You, you mentioned something about our perceptions and, you know, I hate that I have to ask this, but I am curious because Western civilization has 
there is some belief that these indigenous cultures struggle with things like domestic violence and, you know, sexual abuse and, and things like that. And I'm just wondering, is that a reality at all? And if it's not, then are we seeing it in some of these separated indigenous cultures that are having some form of modern modernization infiltrated into it? And so that's what's creating that. That is exactly And it. I can think of... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, go it's ahead. very interesting. No, I, I mean, I'm just thinking an example in my own background. Um, you know, so my, my mother is from Ecuador and there are still some indigenous cultures there. And, you know, from her own experience, what she's told me is domestic violence is rampant. And so, you know, she thinks... Well, that means, you know, she just thinks, is it possible that all cultures are like this kind of thing? Yes. And so that's what that's what I was really curious about. So there are definitely indigenous uh, cultures still living traditionally in Ecuador. And there's there's a f- quite a few, actually, uh, that I can think of just off the top of my head. In my experience, I haven't seen a single ounce of it. Not not an ounce, not even a hint. None. Where Where I see it is when modernization has come in, uh, especially belief systems have come in along with that. And so where they used to get their regality and their healthy pride and trust in themselves, they lose that. And along with that, they start changing their diet, which changes their blood sugar. Uh, They get the alcoholism, these kind of things. That's when everything comes in. It can come in very, very quickly in the first two generations, usually. Some places, like with the Batwa, it took six. So it really depends uh, on on how strong their microbiome is and some other factors. But for instance, when I'm with the Inuit up in Greenland, the ones that live traditionally, imagine how proud they must be of themselves. You know, we think of it as a very hard life. They don't think of it as hard, but they are proud of overcoming the challenges. Like, Dragging a walrus out of the ocean on thin ice <laughs> is wildly dangerous and difficult and takes incredible skill, right? So when they come home, they are proud to provide that to the community. They're very proud. Now, we come up there and we say, it's not healthy to eat meat and these animals are going endangered and, and these need to stop. And also you have to live in these houses, which which happened to them. The, the Danish made it illegal to live in their traditional homes. They made it illegal to use the dog sleds, so now they have to use snowmobiles. So now they have to come up with a source of money, which they've never used. Mm. But they're not allowed to use their trade. They can't do the hunting or selling the fur. And so it puts them in a position where they don't have value to bring to a society that is telling them that they have no value. They have to create a way to provide for their family, but they can't do it. They're in a total catch-22. And at the same time, they're given alcohol which they've never had. And so it, it's like a perfect storm. And that's where you get immense suicides. I mean, the, the male and the teenage male suicide rate in Greenland is so tragic and, and unfortunately very common whenever this happens. And, and then you also have the, the, the domestic issues, like in Papua New Guinea, where I was earlier this year, in the semi-modernized communities, it's it's horrific on a level I don't even want to share with your viewers. It's um, it's hard not to see it once once you hear it. So, 
So that absolutely does happen, but I haven't seen uh, even a, a hint of that in these places. There, there's just no animosity, honestly. Okay, wait, let's, I want to talk more about, yeah, I want to talk about the family structure. So what does family structure look like? What does childcare look like? You know, are these multi-generational families or are, you know, and, and are they living, if they are multi-generational, are they living under one roof? Are they living, um, you know, with like grandparents next door and then aunts and uncles on the other side? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, what does this all look like? And obviously you've been to a lot of different places, so this is going to be different for different cultures, I assume. But just give us some ideas. Maybe, Maybe the ones that you've been most struck by, I don't know. Okay. Well, for the most part, the family sleeps on one bed in one place. That, that's definitely the most common. And it's a small bed. It's the size of a twin bed. And you could have a good 13 people on that one bed. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I was reading a book with my two kids. So there were three of us on a twin bed just tonight. And I remember you saying this at the conference yes. and thinking, where can the other 10 people sleep on this bed? I don't understand. This are they small need- people? Like Christine's small <laughs> and her children are small. I'm like, I, I'm a tall person and I have not. Mary's very tall children. too. But yeah, Mary's tall. And like I can't imagine. We had to buy a king size bed when we had our third baby because we already had two other children in our bed with us. And then I put a twin size mattress next to my king size bed so that we could all, we could have the baby in the middle and then the two bigger kids. And then me and my husband, we were all in one bed, but it was like a king size bed with a twin size mattress. I don't understand where you're putting all these people, Mary. (laughs) I don't either. I mean, I've seen it, but it's still hard. It's still hard. The, they tend to all really snuggle. And in some communities, like with the Chaga in Kilimanjaro, they they continue to do that even with their adult children until they get married. And so they're not super adult, but like 18, you know, something like that. So everyone's kind of piled on. There are some communities, and, and it's not uncommon. I'd, I'd have to look at my notes to see the exact percentage, but I, I would guess about 35% of the communities. Either the male or the dad sleeps separately by the door to protect the family, or he sleeps with the Mm -hmm. wife and the youngest children. That does happen. Um, But it's far more common to have a big pile uh, of everyone. And sometimes the animals too. Like when I was with the the Sammy up north, the dogs will sleep with them as well under the fur, especially in the winter, definitely. Um, Which you would would want more dogs. You would want more warmth. It's it's beyond cold there. So so yeah, that's the, the normal structure. Now, even in communities where they have multiple dwellings, like let's take in uh, the Kazakh eagle hunters, for example. Usually each family will have about three yurts, gurs, or tents, depending on where you're from. And one is typically for making dairy, making cheese and, and different products. One is for more cooking, and then one is for more sleeping. And in that one, Typically what I've seen, and I don't know if this is traditional before, but this is certainly what's going on now, the husband and wife sleep in one bed, and then the children have another bed. So, so that would be an exception, but it's, it's really not common. And it, there's never an instance that I've seen where anyone sleeps by themselves, anyone, ever. Wait, how, how are people making babies? <laughs> 
No, they have no, they have great sex drives, really. And they just put the kids out, you know, the kids are out and then they, they do their things and then the kids come back in. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> I think because. I'm glad you asked that, Christine, because yeah. everybody's, everybody is wondering it. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. I think because uh, intercourse hasn't been demonized or made to be a sin or anything like that, or or even like over-sexualized with pornography and things like that, it's very natural for them. And it seems, in my mind, from what I've seen, very healthy, a very healthy approach to it. They have a healthy interest. They uh, don't seem to stray. and And they seem to work it into the family life very well really. I'm just picturing a whole bunch of adults spooning each spooning each other. <laughs> I know. I know. But the more we <laughs> learn about the microbiome, the HRV and the hormones, you can see why it's so important. It would really bond them with their oxytocin, which makes you really want to protect, right? And nurture. So it makes you much tighter as a community or as a family. It gives you a lot of feel-good chemicals and it really relaxes your nervous system. Right. So the children feel very, very safe, but so does everyone else. Everyone feels very, very safe and calm. Uh, in addition, you're sharing your microbiome. So let's say something really rough happened. There was a, a family member that got bitten by a deadly snake, you know, and treated by their, by their medicine. The microbiome would be shared by the rest of the family to this person. And so it, you can really see the purpose of this. And then in addition, they're all waking up and going to sleep at the same time, right? There's no like, mm-hmm. I'm a night owl, I'm a morning person. That doesn't exist. So, so they're, they're constantly in community, which constantly makes you feel safe. And it's a healthy community. You know, there's, there's not the abuse, the anger, the, the really difficult things that, that we deal with so much. And so, so they want to be together. They look forward to it. Okay. So I'm thinking of, there's, 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 I mean, I'm not even sure how to say this. When there's all of these, you know, normal, what we would perceive as being normal, you know, feelings of being touched out, if you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I know when I've had, especially when I've had newborns, I have just been, you know, there's so much physical time with that, with that newborn that. I don't want anybody else around me. Yes. Does that exist? Is that maybe wrapped up into that 40 days thing that some cultures have after birth? I'm like, I cannot imagine sleeping with that many people. I'm, I'm like getting a little bit, my skin's crawling a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's so different though, because, you know, and I know every family right now has its own unique structure in our culture, right? Everyone's, every couple is kind of making their own rules and trying to figure it out. Yeah. Which is stressful enough, right? But, but for many, many moms, they're either on their own at home, meaning like their, their partner is out working and they're home with the children, but they don't have the community. They don't have other moms around them. They don't have sisters and aunts and, and mothers, or they're working like the man. So they're burnout, right? And they were burnout going into the pregnancy. And, mm. And, and basically trying to be a superhuman, right? And so, so you get more of that with the damage to the oxytocin system, which can happen. What you've experienced, that's not 
an issue of that, but that would be in the extreme cases, right? When you meet people that don't like to be touched at all, not just when they've just had a child, <laughs> that's when you would see that. That's a burnout oxytocin system. But the, um, now I think it's a, I really think being introverted or needing time alone and time off right now is a very normal human response because we have all these sounds and all these situations coming at us. And we don't have the, uh, in fact, we should make a new hierarchy of needs. Really? You guys, we should do this together. The, um, because we, no one, no one in our culture, I would be shocked if anyone did actually has the things you need for your nervous system and your body to recover after a birth. And so when I'm in these cultures, there are a couple, although it's very rare, where the woman and the baby are off with the other women after birth, but that is not normal. Uh, normally they're, they're back together, but we have to think how different it is, right? One, they have so much energy and health that if we could put that in a pill, we would be gazillionaires, right? So they, they have a lot of that. Two, they're very calm and their babies are very calm. Their babies sleep through the night and they don't cry. So, so you have that. No, so you just have this adorable little cuddly thing that wants milk. I mean, it's, it's like, it's adorable. And they strap it on the back or they hold it. You've got your aunts, you've got your sisters, you've got your best friends to help. You know, so you're, you're not abandoned and alone. You know, I, I feel like in the best of situations now, women are very lucky if, I mean, it, I would love it to get to stay home with the children, but it has a whole new stress that we women have not had before. And that is the isolation of not having other women around. And so it's really not the same as these cultures experience. You add on that the nutritional issues, the, the light pollution and all the other things. A, a mom is going through a lot and, and we are wired to care for our children. And we, we sense a lot of things around us, right? As much as we want to shut down our intuition, mother's intuition is really strong. And you're going to pick up on things and want to protect your child. And that's going to be stressful, right? Even over small things. And so you get to a point where you just frizzle and you're like, everybody out, right? Because you can only handle so much as a human, as a nervous system, take away the emotions as a nervous system. And so it's, it's really quite quite natural and it's protective because if the mother doesn't take care of herself when society is not taking care of the mother, what's going to happen to the child, right? So that, that feeling that you may get to like, I need my own time here. I need to put this down is necessary. And I would say, listen to that because you have to be healthy to be able to take care of your child. And we are, we are living in a very, very challenging time to be a mom. I'm not gonna lie. This is making me a little bit emotional. <laughs> like it bums me out that the, that community is so thin in our culture that it and that you know you you have you have a baby you know at home or in a hospital doesn't matter and you are on your own essentially usually after day three, you know, and, and if you are a, you have other children and your partner has to go back to their, their livelihood, you know, say you stay home, which is a huge blessing, but your partner then has to leave again after a few weeks. 
And maybe if you're lucky, I mean, my husband had to go back to work like the after one of my kids, he literally left the hospital after I'd given birth and had to go back to work. And it's just, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah, I really feel it's it's very clear to me from what I've seen. The way that we're running society is uh, in opposition to having healthy families, healthy bodies, healthy children. It's not respecting the human body at all. Uh, it's not respecting the mother. It's not respecting the dad. Uh, everyone is burnout and, uh, and no one is happy, even in the best situations. I, this is probably obvious now that we're having this conversation, but I'm sure that's why the rate of postpartum depression is so high. Oh, yes. Yeah. I think a combination of extreme underlying nutritional deficiencies, because the mom will give the baby what the baby needs. There's no question about that. And uh, alongside the, you know, women, both women and men. So I don't want to just say men are doing great. They're actually really not. But women's bodies are not designed for the society that we're running. It's The society is designed for men. And we're in it as women, but doing very masculine things, which really does affect us. And so by the time we go, it affects us scientifically and hormonally. I, I'm not talking from psychology. By the time we go in and we have a child and, and we're, we're giving birth, which is a, a major stress on the body, it's a healthy stress, one that we shouldn't even think about, but it, it is a big major stress right now because of all the other underlying stress that we're dealing with. The body just shuts down. There's no more reserve. You know, you can't just make feel-good chemicals out of nowhere and handle things out of nowhere. We really require each other. We have never been an isolated species. As much as we might like to be, we are a communal species. We really need each other. And the idea that we can go off and do our own things, we can, but there's a massive health cost to that. And, uh, and it's, it's society-wide. Uh, wide. You've mentioned a few times now about how our our hormones are affected by our community around us. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. So our hormonal system is fascinating, and it is different than any other system that we have. It does not have a central location. So our circulatory system has the heart, the nervous system has the brain, right? And we all know that you can't just take that organ out and keep living. The hormonal system doesn't have anything like that. You may think, well, you may be at home thinking, well, the testes or, you know, the, the ovaries, but we can take those out. And if we take those out, let's say a uh, uh, trigger warning for anyone that doesn't want to talk about anatomy. Let's just put that out there. But okay, so let's say we take the testes anatomy out. Anatomy is not bad words, people. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we take the testes out. A grown man has his testes removed, all right, and kept at a hospital for a month, all right, and then later has them put in, say, in the arm. His hormonal system will relink to those testes in his arm. We don't know how it works. It is fascinating. The uterus, the ovaries for women, the idea that you can have a hysterectomy and stop producing those hormones, it doesn't work. Other, other areas of the body start producing estrogen when you remove the ovaries. It's 
it's a very magical system and it doesn't respond like other ones. So many are much more affected by diet. And of course, hormones are too, but the hormones respond more to anything. They respond to lifestyle and interaction. And so we're seeing all these males with low testosterone, incredibly low. It's going down by a percentage every year for 70 years right? Uh, we're seeing all of these couples that are sexless. We have teenagers that aren't even interested in, in uh, sex or intercourse, which when in history has that ever been the case? And then we have women going through horrific perimenopause and menopause and terrible periods and difficulty with, with pregnancy and even getting pregnant is very difficult, right? Many of the countries I go to, they will pay couples to do IVF. That's how bad it's gotten around the world. And so we have all these hormonal issues, but what's not understood is, or, or we do actually know, <laughs> but it's not known publicly, or even I would say most of the medical field isn't aware because it's in the research sciences, but the hormones respond by how we interact. So if you two and I were sitting in a kitchen or a room or even outside having the same conversation, our progesterone would balance and our progesterone gives us grace. So you know how people get called Karens, you know, women that are getting older that are just like done with it. They don't have progesterone. They're just lacking progesterone and they're just calling what it is, right? And so, so we would have a lot of progesterone. And traditionally, women always sat together. Even once the industrial era came in, there would still typically be at least once a week where you would get together with your girlfriends and do knitting or reading, something like that. And that is actually all it takes once a week with a group of other females to balance that. Likewise, the way that we interact with our husbands really affects our hormones. And the way that that interaction goes can make us feel very happy, both of us, both male and female, in the relationship and want, want to keep it going and, and have a great sex life. Or it can lead to a lot of resentment and anger and burnout and health issues. And, and it's very much physical. It's about what you do physically and how you interact with each other. So the same things that I would do as a female, right? And this is as a born female. So, so that's what we're talking about here. As a born female, things, actions that I would take may really benefit me. And a born male could really hurt and cause issues. So... In this current kind of post-feminine uh, feminist era, we've kind of taken on this, we can do it all, and both sexes are doing it, right? And the cost is on our quality of life, because hormones are our quality of life, and on our, on our bonding and these kind of things. So to give you an example, if a man every single day has even 20 minutes to himself to go do something physical outside, his testosterone is going to be fabulous, fabulous. And testosterone is his statesman hormone, right? If you think of a statesman, it's calm, collected, and able to provide and help. It's not the violent hormone. Violence in men is caused by too much estrogen. So, so they get too much estrogen from doing traditionally female things, ironically, uh, along with some dietary things. For us, if we go outside and chop wood or go work on a project, no benefit. In fact, we could be pretty stressed by that. And definitely if we're chopping wood, we're going to produce too much testosterone uh, and uh, especially the other male hormones, which can lead to uh, PCOS, endometriosis, the hormonal acne, and these sorts of issues. So, so simple things that we would think don't matter can really impact our quality of life. And 
if we start to learn about these things and figure out how we can incorporate them into our daily life and, and into our modern life, right? Because we do live differently now. Uh, we, can, we can be so much happier in, in our own bodies, but also in our relationships as well. I'm letting that sink in. Okay. So what, what are we talking about here? You know, you gave the example of men going out and and chopping wood or I I don't know, building something or what would be the very, the opposite of that would be the feminine thing that, that would be, would it be Mm. like cooking or would it be tending to the children or yeah, I, yeah. I'm almost I, having a hard time like figuring out what that means. I know. I don't want to alarm anyone. But the I'll give you a different example. In the hunter-gatherer groups that I go out with, people are always asking if women go. And I see a lot of articles online yeah. expecting that, oh, no, definitely this community, like they, you know, 2,000 years ago, the women went hunting. Well, what, what people clearly don't understand is, one, female hormones. Our hormones change daily, and the animals can smell that. We are not good hunters. It doesn't matter how good of a shot we are. It's a problem for getting the animals, right? And so the males go out. Now the males get a reward when they come back with an animal to feed the tribe. They get vasopressin, which is their hormone that bonds them to their wife and to their children. So for men, they have to work for something to bond. If they don't work for something, they don't bond. If we take the huli that I was with in Papua New Guinea this year, the men have to go through about 10 years of challenges before they can take a wife. And even then, they have to build a house and do all these things before the wife's family will say yes. Can you imagine with vasopressin bonding, how much vasopressin they've already produced in, in order to be able to have a wife, to have children? They're going to fight for that woman and child. They're going to bond. They're going to stay. They're not going to be looking at the next female that walks by. <laughs> They're not going to be trying to get out, right? And so the, the act of doing that is very helpful for the male. Now, if we go out hunting, it causes health issues for us, right? We're going to be producing too much testosterone. And that doesn't mean, ladies listening, that you, if you like to hunt, go hunt. It, it's not that. It's You can incorporate the things that you can incorporate and see how it benefits. But really, with the amount of estrogen and progesterone issues we're having, it's very relevant. So for instance, I think it's very kosher to talk about children. So let's talk about children. With babies and with infants and toddlers, the way that they bond to humans is different with the male and with the female adults in their life. With the female, when the female nurtures the baby or the toddler, that's when the toddler will produce oxytocin in response and bond, right? When the mom plays with the toddler, you don't get that. Conversely, when the male plays with the toddler, the toddler gets oxytocin. If the male nurtures, the toddler does not get oxytocin. So so very different hormonal responses to the same activity. And we have that across the board from carrying things to, to what we need for rewards, all of that for women. And why I think this is so relevant, uh, because I'm constantly seeing people that are just burnt out and, and really struggling. Women need safety. They need safety and they need to know that they're taken care of for their hormones to work well. I don't care who you are. You could be some hotshot lawyer. Hormonally, that is what is needed. And so right now, what do we have? We don't have safety. Even if you're in a great marriage, there's no guarantee that something won't happen and that you're out on your own. There's not a whole community 
supporting it, right? And in all the indigenous communities, if something happens to the dad, let's say uh, they don't have divorces or, or issues because they don't fight, but let's say, <laughs> let's say that, you know, they were trampled by an elephant, okay? They have a structure as to who takes care of the wife. There's never a question of the woman and the children being taken care of. And so they're never in survival mode. A woman now from teenage years on, honestly, from menstruation, pure survival mode. And the actions that we're taking, which are very masculine, because that's what our culture really dictates, right? And unconsciously, it's not anyone's fault. It's very unconscious. But right now, it's, it's all about action, right? You talk to a child, what do you want to be, right? And that's action-oriented. And that's the masculine hormone that comes out with action. The exercise we give to children is very masculine, right? So it's fine for the boys. It's not as great for the girls. So, so all of these things really impact the hormones and can affect the health lifelong. But yeah, for women, they need safety for their hormones. I'm not talking psychologically. I want to really state that again. And for the males, they need, they need to provide and they need to work for something. They need to actually uh, take action towards something. If they don't, if they have what, what we so often have now, the very casual relationships, which is zero judgment, right? I mean, I think it's most of the population, but it doesn't work for male bonding. And so it's going to be very difficult for when challenges arise in a couple that got together quickly and without challenge of all, at all, like no requirements of the male, it's going to be very difficult when a challenge arises for that couple to stay together because the vasopressin bond won't be there. And so it can really break down very easily. And, and it has nothing to do with how much you love each other at all. It has to do with the hormonal response to who you're responsible for. Uh, and that the traditional societies have nailed <laughs> And our society has really not. It's done the opposite. <laughs> Unintentionally. Everyone is paying the price. Literally everyone is paying the price. So, um, so it's not surprising now that we have these low testosterone, that we have these low sex drives, that, that we have these fertility issues, and that, that we have so much depression and anxiety and loneliness and, and stress. Um, because the, we do need the society as well as within the house, as well as within the couple, as well as within the family. It, it's all important. Very. Wow. That is fascinating. That's, I wish that more people knew this information. Me too. So, okay. We are moms or parents or caregivers listening right now. We live in cities. We live in suburbs. We live maybe out on some property. How can we optimize our hormones with our current family structure? What so do the, you... Yeah, the coolest thing yeah, is that it's think? actually very easy. It's actually very easy and it's really fun. So it just takes uh, asking for things and allowing things to happen that you would never do, right? So if you have boys in your family, make them do the hard labor. <laughs> it doesn't matter that we can do it too, but really put them to work. It actually teaches them to do that for their future families. So if there's like a really hard physical thing, put them to work. If you need to carry a lot of things in from the house, have them do it. It doesn't matter that you can do it, right? <laughs> have them do it. And, and that actually will help their hormones and yours while they're doing that. So both of you will benefit from that. Same with if you're married, if you have a husband or a partner, 
same. Allow them to open the door for you. Allow them to come and pick you up. Like, let's say you're getting in from an airport and you would normally get a taxi. Be like, hey, babe, I would really love it if you would pick me up. That'll really help your hormones. So, so really small things like that worked into the day can be very helpful. The reality is most women are working today and working at home, right? Like, so with the children plus out and a, a lot of men are doing a lot of the, the traditionally feminine tasks as well. So, so there's a real hybrid and the key to working it into your life is to make it into a bit of a dance, like to allow things allow someone to lift something for you as a female, allow them to open the door, definitely schedule a weekly thing with your ladies. And when you feel that you are really burning out, have your guy do something for you. And don't, don't hesitate to do that. I, I don't want to speak for you all. And I, I know we were all brought up very individually. I mean, America has so much range, but I really felt growing up like I should never ask for anything you know, that we're capable of everything and we can do it. And there's a great thing about that. But the, the downside is hormones, <laughs> hormones, right? It's stressful. And so, so really, really allowing uh, your partners to do things for you and dividing the labor. I would absolutely divide the labor. Now, if you're in a traditional household, meaning that uh, you're a mom and you're at home with the children and the dad is out providing for in that couple, Doing housework for the woman is actually helpful. And I'm so sorry. Please don't. I feel like I shouldn't even tell you guys that. But hormonally, it's actually not. It's pretty good. Uh, and if the guy does it, it's not. It's certainly good on occasion, like once a week. Absolutely. That is great and will help your relationship, but not as the norm. Whereas if the wife or the mom is working outside of the house and comes home to do the dishes, not you don't get the same response with the estrogen. You get a lot of cortisol produced as well. So it's not really good for either partner at that stage. So that's where you could delegate to the children to do a lot more chores and tasks to help with that. Then if you have a very masculine field, so non-caretaking, right? Uh, the hormones for females tend to respond better to the caretaking field. So that's like nursing, healthcare, and anything to do with nurture, right? It's a lot teaching. harder. Teaching, absolutely, yeah being a secretary, all those things, those actually work great with our hormones. It's a lot harder with some of the more masculine fields like CEO, uh, lawyer. There are fields within being a lawyer that are easier for the hormones like real estate law, but the real, uh, most of it is, is very difficult. And so with those, what you want to do is you want to balance out your home life. If you have a very masculine career and you want to stay in that career, you love it, then at home and with your relationship, you want to really culture that feminine and do all the things you can do to allow your feminine hormones to be balanced and not to use your masculine. So, you know, have the guys lift the things and, and plan the dates and pay for the things and, and all that kind of stuff if you can. So that would be really the way to kind of adjust it and, and go about it as best as you can. Wow. This is so much not what we're used to hearing, you know, Unless, I know. I, I mean, like, no, I'm, I'm just thinking of the average individual hearing this and our overly feminist society and just all of the, all of the issues, which will not be named on this podcast that are going on right now. I know. I think the problem is, is that everything is so well-intentioned, you know, 
the feminist movement was so well-intentioned and, and what's the fallout has been, at least in my opinion, has been on one side, absolutely wonderful. I love that I get to do all the things that I do. You know, I think a lot of us do. The difficulty is that uh, there's not much, in, in my opinion, and I could be very off base, I don't feel that there's a reverence for the real feminine energy and what a female brings to a relationship, to a family, to a community. It, it feels like that's been very downplayed while the masculine has been upplayed. And so, mm-hmm. and so like growing up for me, I, I always wanted to be a mom. But where I grew up, it wasn't okay to just say that you wanted to be a mom. It was, you said what you want to do in a career and, right? And so, and I, I don't know, maybe that's changed. I don't know. But the fact that it's difficult to do or even choose to do or find someone to do this with, what women have done for thousands of years and, and where they've been really exalted and respected and, and valued there's a real hole there. So t- to me, what I've seen with feminism is that it was very well-intentioned and a lot of it was very needed, but it's also left the feminine and the skill set of the natural feminine uh, as undervalued. And I-, I think it was very unintentional, but that is what I see. And when you go to these communities, and I realize your listeners probably will never be able to because so few people do, you remember. If you have older aunts or grandmothers around you, you remember the wonder of being around this warm, nurturing, lovely, graceful being that is just there to make you shine. It is a fabulous energy. And then you bring in it, you know, as a practitioner, of course, I have to say, the mom was the doctor of the family. And she was who nourished the children and and gave them the healthy, safe nervous systems, uh, that safe place that they knew that she would be, right? And so these things have kind of been discarded as unimportant, again, unintentionally, but there absolutely is a human cost and there's there's a hormonal cost. And so hopefully, I really hope that that we'll be able to integrate you know, these things that, that we're learning about the hormones into our modern life. I think there's no reason why we can't uh, and have a much better one and, and much better relationships with it. This is making me so grateful for being back in a city where I'm surrounded by family. Hmm. Wow. I mean, just today, my mother-in-law picked up my little one from his Montessori program and spent the whole afternoon with him and then came and spent the afternoon with us. And like I said, had dinner with us. I mentioned that earlier, Um, you know, before heading back home. And it's, it's making me appreciate the family that I have here and making me realize, wow, it's way more important than I thought it was. I knew it was important, but whoa, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, we're not even scratching the surface. Like it's so wildly important. It's so wildly important that I don't have words for it. I don't have words for it. Like, yeah, yeah. I I obviously I have no words for it. It's actually very very important. Oh man, it's almost it's almost overwhelming though because our culture is so not set up that way. I mean, even if you live 
you know, closer to family. It's still, we've all been so trained to be so fiercely independent Mm -hmm. that it is very difficult to even imagine trying to set that up. But I, I, I really appreciate your attempt to kind of boil it down to, you know, practical things that we can do in, in, in our, in our lives, because, you know, it is, it is impossible. I mean, for the most part, impossible for us to truly get back to a sort of small cultural situation because just because of the way the United States is. But those, those are some things that are definitely doable. Yeah. I think, I think what can be done is whether you're dating or you're in a marriage, the way that you relate to that partner and the way that you relate to your child, those things can be brought in. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is it is a bit scary as a woman now to, to get into a marriage and to not have something for herself, right? Because we don't have the community. We don't have the guarantee. We have a very high divorce rate and we have a a very high mental, mental illness rate, right? So we, we have a lot of people, not just males, just people in general that are a bit dangerous. So, so you kind of need more support. So I, I think, uh, I don't think it's realistic for us to, to go back as much as I would love everyone to experience what I get to see. But I do think you can bring it into your relationships and, uh, and work it so that the male feels like he's working for his family and providing in whatever way that means, right? It it does not have to be financial. It could be a different way. And that the female is in the nurturing role and that she's being made to feel safe. Those two things are very important for each other to respect each other, to bond long-term and to really be there like a real ride or die when conflict and issues come up, right? Because we all have major issues that that come into our life and they're always unexpected. And, uh, you know, one thing I, I see in all of these groups is that from the age of childhood, really young children, they're working on character development. But then you bring in the bonding that they have with the hormones. And if something comes to that village, they all unite, against that. There is none of this inner bickering or inner family bickering or inner community bickering. And so we can bring those hormonal bonding techniques in regardless of the family structure and the things, and then balance out our work home life as much as possible, delegate as much as possible. Right. And, and really start to appreciate the, the real gift of what the other person is doing. Right. It's much easier to appreciate someone when they're doing something different than you're bringing to the party. Uh, you know, if we have a potluck, no one's like super grateful, except for maybe there's a dish that's like extra good, right? It's just a potluck. But if, if you're hosting and uh, someone brings all the drinks and another person brings all the food, right? So you're just providing the place and another person brings the flowers, very grateful, right? You can easily see how that saved you time and energy and all those things. So, so those are things that I think can really be brought in and, uh, and utilized. And, and the idea that men, men actually do need a bit of time alone each day. Women absolutely need more camaraderie, no question. Um, and the differences in, in how the children relate and bond. 
Out of curiosity, are the children helping with household tasks or are they spending the majority of the day playing? Oh, they, they all help. So even, even like a two-year-old will be cutting with a knife and doing things. They're, they're very confident. They're given a lot of trust and then they feel very confident. And so, uh, you know, once the time they come off the back and they're no longer sleeping and nursing all the time, and so much less frequently, and then they're, they're doing all the things. In fact, they'll even have their toys will be like bow and arrow that they practice with, you know, so, so they really will be doing all the things. And at what stage, at what age, I mean, are male children kind of sent off with the men and female children encouraged to stay with the, with the women? Well, it depends. So the different communities are a bit different with that. Some are more extreme, like with the Huli in Papua New Guinea, the boys go off about 10 and they don't come back until they're sometimes even 18. They don't come back. They go to like a, a what men's do you mean school. They go, yeah. they go okay, to the woods. Sorry, go yeah, they go into the woods with the other, with the other <laughs> teenage boys and they learn to make something called a hair hat and they, they learn all these things that they have to bring into the community. So if they're not able to do these things in the community, then they're not allowed in, right? So they, they Christine, kind of your to, son just turned 10. I know. Well, so I, I put a lot of thought into his 10th birthday because after listening to Mary's talk, I realized he's not going to go into the woods and kill an animal or I'm not going to go leave him there for a month. What are we going to do? How how can I bring significance to the fact that you are now 10? Yeah. And I mean, we're not we're not going to do any of these physical challenges. I couldn't think of any. Maybe if you want to give me a suggestion, I'll take it. But instead, I asked all of the men in the family to write a letter to him explaining what they thought being a man meant. Oh, I like that. That's really sweet. And really so like then I, yeah, I put that in a book and, you know, he'll have that going forward kind of thing. Okay. So you just but, brought up something really important that I've never talked about. The men are the ones teaching the boys, not the women. So it is never the women or the wives nagging a man ever, ever. By the time a man is getting married to a woman, she won't need to nag him because the elders have already beaten that out of him, whatever that would be. The elder men. Yeah. And they wouldn't accept anything else. So if they see it, they'll nip it in the bud. That, what you just did was actually brilliant. That's really brilliant because people don't talk about like what it is to be something right? Uh, you can't really be something without having a vision of it. So that's, that's super important. They don't all have very difficult rites of passage, uh, but they do all have rites of passage, definitely. And some are short. It might happen on a day and others are longer. Like the Messiah is usually three years or 10, three to 10, depending on the person and, and the Huli, those are longer ones. But I think anything that really calls a man to be his highest self uh, is really good for boys, just like it is for women. Wait, you also said something I was curious about breastfeeding, actually. Yeah. Because you touched question? a little bit on the babies, yeah, when they are no longer nursing constantly. Mm-hmm. How, yeah, maybe we can transition over to what does birth look like? What or about also breastfeeding? at like an, an hour and a I know, I know, I know. So, Maybe this is the last thing. We can end it with Hold on, hold on. I think we're going to have to, we have to, I'm so sorry, but we have to, we have to say what 
the girls are doing. Because we, it. you said the the boys, and we do have That's to say, point. yeah, yeah, and and That's I we may have to let's see how long this takes because we we'll may have to stop it. That. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll I'll make it short because the women don't have to do as much. They don't have to do as much because their initiation is menstruation and motherhood. Mm-hmm. Right. When they get married, they change their name, they change their family, they change everything. So for the woman, it is menstruation and motherhood. Uh, there are very few exceptions to that rule. Like the, the hammer tribe is one. They're amazing. But uh, and that just happens on one day where the it sounds awful. I don't want to say it if I don't explain it well. So we'll skip it. But in general, that is their initiation and that is what matures them. The, the women in these groups mature very quickly because they're helping with the children from very young ages, right? Uh, everyone isn't so separate. So all of your neighbors would have children at the same time and, and your kids at like three will start taking care of the infants too. So, so it's all shared and, and uh, done. And so the, the women age a bit faster. And then the men take on the role of protection and responsibility. And for that, they have to really condition themselves that it, it obviously doesn't just happen, right? Look at our society. I mean, it just doesn't just happen from being born male. So, so the, the older males really teach those men how to become really good humans. And meanwhile, the, the girls are already going through that. So, so it's very, very different for the different sexes. Is there a menstruation ceremony or some form of a recognition once a woman enters into that stage? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a really happy event. And, and one thing that you, you may want to know actually in regards to that is that I haven't yet been to a society that uh, marries girls young. So a girl may start menstruating at say 11 or 13. It's usually at least two, if not five years. Uh, before they get married, sometimes even longer. Uh, so, so they really, that may not be too surprising for anyone listening who has animals and cattle and things like that. Uh, even with my dog, right? I have a pedigree dog. I didn't intend that. It just happened. and I love him. But he, uh, the, the breeders said, we want to stud him. So you're not allowed to, <laughs> basically they gave him to me to take care of, but they want to stud him. And they said, you can't, uh, you can't stud him for two years. It, he's been ready to go for a year and a half right? But ready to go. He is like jonesing at the bit. But they know that it would be too stressful on his body, on the the female dog's body, and it won't be as good. They won't have as good of children, right? Puppies. Uh, same thing in these groups. They, they've seen time and time again what works and what doesn't. And so they don't do the premature marriages that we can see in, in some of our societies today, uh, which I feel is relevant to talking about that. Yeah, that is important. And when it comes to menstruation, do women, do they leave the group when they're menstruating? Are they around men at all? How is that even? Like does PMS, I mean, I know you said that there's less cramping, but like, do you get the hormonal thing where you're cranky for a couple of days? (laughs) This was one of the most mind blowing things uh, of, of my learnings over the years. They get nothing. They get nothing. Uh, the most I got anyone to admit is like maybe a little bit more tired, maybe like just a hair, like just a little bit, but not really noticeable. You know, they don't they don't get the moods. They don't get the acne. They don't get the cramping, the bloating. They get nothing, nothing. 
very few societies, the women go off. In general, the bleeding is not as heavy as it is for us because their hormones are balanced. They bleed, but it's not, it's not insane. <laughs> it's not a ton. And so it's manageable with leaves and things like that, or a bit of fur. It depends what culture I'm in. And, uh, and they're not seen as, as dirty or needing to be separate, nothing like that. Now, in some of the hybrid communities, hybrid, what I mean by that is slightly modernized. It could be very slightly, like really slightly. Those communities can do that more uh, to where the woman then uh, would go off into the woods or be with other women. But it's really uncommon. I would say. I, I think it's more of something from our biblical European tradition and less so with the indigenous. They don't, they very much uh, are part of nature and, and really have a reverence for nature. And so menstruation is part of that. And it's not seen as taboo or dirty or anything, anything but uh, uh, a good thing, really. Hmm. My, how different that is to today's society that tries to suppress it as much as possible. Yes. Yes. Okay. I think I'm so sorry about the breastfeeding thing. I think we'll have to have another conversation with Mary at some other point. We can talk all about boobs, but (laughs) I think we are at an hour and a half. We have to just call this, but if we could, if you could boil it down like to you know, the richest caramel possible. What would be the thing that you would tell to mothers, particularly mothers of young children or children still in the home? You know, what is the one thing that you would give or one piece of advice that you could give to them? Got it. If applicable, and please don't feel guilty if it's not. I realize you all are stretched in a lot of different directions, but if applicable, Hug, touch, and nurture your children as much as humanly possible. Eye contact and touching is very, very important for both of you. So I would do that as much as humanly possible. I would really delegate. I wouldn't hesitate to get the children doing chores and helping out about the house. And and conversely, with the men in your life, if you're with a man, uh, (laughs) have him do things for you. He'll feel good about it, and you will too. So, so that is very important. I want to leave you with one F, uh, fun fact, if I can. Can I leave you with a fun fact? Yes, please. Okay, because I think, I think it's really relevant. Uh, and it's not something I've talked about on any podcast. Just like everything else we've talked about, from carrying things to going outside alone to having you know groups of females, whatever it is, very different on the different sexes. With this time in our life where there are so many different conflicts and and couples are really having difficulty, individuals are having difficulty, many people go to therapy. Therapy works for women, does not work for men. I'm so sorry, everyone, but I think you all need to know this. So talk therapy, the traditional form of talking about your emotions, will give a man more estrogen. It will actually make him more depressed, more stressed, and more violent. It's one of the reasons why you see often in couples, if they go to talk therapy, the man shut down. And if he doesn't shut down, he may become more feminine in his life. It's the estrogen coming out. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that if you're having trouble, that you just do nothing. Of course not. A man has to go towards action. 
to get his correct hormones going so that he doesn't have the depression, the violence, the anger. A woman, if we aren't heard and validated, we produce masculine hormones. That makes us very stressed, very angry, very burnt out. We must be heard and validated. And I think it's no surprise that when our kind of communities broke down 50 years ago in so many ways to where there aren't a lot of people at home, there aren't a lot of women just talking, right? We got so into therapy. We do need to talk and be heard. For us, it balances our hormones. But do know it doesn't do the same thing for men. Hmm. Oh, man. I'm going to have my husband listen to this episode. <laughs> oh, same. <laughs> Like, can I blast this somewhere so everybody can hear this? Well, I just think like there's so many good things to talk about in regards to raising children, in regards to how you structure your marriage relationship, you know, in regards to how, you know, you're relating to each other and your, I mean, oh man, there's a lot. Yeah. Your extended family, your friends. Mm Mm-hmm. This makes me feel better about the, when you say try to hang out, I guess, with your girls or, you know, with your girlfriends, whatever, once a week. Yeah, there is something. It, I get insane amounts of oxytocin after I see my girlfriends in person. Yeah. Yes. Like it's like, oh, I feel so great. Why, you know, I want to do that every week kind of thing. Yes. That's, yeah. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> no, this I I just don't know what else to say because this information is so valuable and so important. And also, I will say this, I I do remember leaving your presentation at the conference feeling very overwhelmed because it is a massive juxtaposition to the way we're living today. So it 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 begs the question of how do we bridge that gap? What can we do? I'll tell you. I'll tell so you. I, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Cause yeah I, give I, me the I, pill. What's the magic pill? Yes, I have this with my clients too, you know, because I, especially when my practice was open, I was working with very disabled people who really did have to do extremely difficult, extremely strict diets. They could not have a bite off sometimes for years, right? So that's not the normal population. But What can often happen in those situations as you start to learn more and more about how light affects you or different things affect your health is you can want to put yourself in a bubble and that's not healthy. That does not, (laughs) that is not conducive to getting into remission or healing. So in a similar light, if we can use that metaphorically, what I tell them is, is it something that you can control that you learned about? Yes. Then you implement If it's not, you don't even think about it, right? So you may not be able to affect that you don't have extended family or they're not around or you don't have that community, but you can control how you show up in your relationship. You can control how you show up with your children and you can control your own posture and giving yourself rest. Women absolutely need rest. We cannot operate like men. If we do, we have the horrific health issues. We need rest. So we can carve out different days and have different standards for our own self and then show up to relationships with those. And that is what you can do. I never want anyone to stress about the things you can't, you can't handle, not handle, you can't change, right? There is a lot that we can't change. But stressing about that just lowers your immune system and and makes things worse, right? 
humans are resilient. We, we are so resilient. We can handle lots and lots of things. Obviously, our society would not exist at this time and age otherwise. So try not really put things on the shelf if they're not interesting and they don't help you and you can't implement them. The things that I talk about with the communities are more for fascination and for, oh, this is why. I can see why this was the case, you know, and maybe this is why we have some issues now, but it's certainly not ever to feel guilty or shameful or overwhelmed or like, oh my God, I have to do more. No, I want you doing less. <laughs> I want you doing less, delegate, um, and have other people do things for you, right? So otherwise you can't, you can't bring that nice nurturing energy, right? So yeah, that, that would be my tip. Only, only bring in things you can and make it fun. Make it fun. Otherwise, don't do it. Beautiful. I think that's great. Good. Go ahead. Can I, can I ask that unless yeah. you're going to no, ask something else? Okay. So where can our listeners find you? And so you said you're Mar- taking clients, right? So maybe talk a little bit about. Yeah. I literally opened my door today. Oh, cool. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's just always been my favorite thing. You know, I, I have all these things going, but it's really my, like where my heart is. So I'm going back to it. Uh, so maryreddick.com is where you can find me. And that's where I kind of tie all my projects together and everything else. So when I have a new podcast or something, I'll put it on the, on the page and all of that. And then Instagram and YouTube, if you just go for my name, Mary Reddick, you'll find it. Uh, but I'm pretty easy to find honestly. And I'm not, I'm not online very much, at least not historically, because I've been in the indigenous lands, but with opening up my practice, things are going to change. So I shouldn't be so hard to reach. Okay. Awesome. Wow. Thank you so much. Well, thank you and for having me. Thank you for your time. <laughs> yes. Mary is in Australia guys. So this was a fun, fun endeavor trying to figure out time zones and stuff. I know you guys must be so tired. It's late for you all. So sorry. Yeah, no, definitely for Corey. Poor Corey's so, suffering the most. She's like, so just stop talking, Christine. Yes. Oh, okay. But on that, okay. and I'm sorry, I know I could go for like 10 days on this. Women need to go to bed early. FYI. I know, I know. Our, it, our culture does our culture does not allow it, but if a woman can go to bed literally at eight, I know no one can. Call it nine, but scientifically eight, totally different sleep hormonal, immune, nervous system function. Completely different. Men do not have that. They still get benefit from the hours before midnight more than after. It doesn't matter if they have the same amount. But women in particular really need those hours before midnight. So again, don't stress about it. If you have an infant, you can't sleep, you're working nights. But if it's something that you can start to implement, absolutely go to bed earlier and make sure your partners know that we are not being lazy. We're not being weird. We are not being (laughs) antisocial. It's very, very good for us to go to bed after sunset. Yeah. Can we so, wake up early though before sunset? Absolutely. Before sun, before sunrise. I mean, sorry, sunrise, sunrise. Oh sunrise. yes, 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 yes. You could sleep like eight to four. Is actually a perfect female sleep cycle. Uh, very perfect. Yeah. See, that makes sense to me because when I put the baby to bed, or I mean, she's not a baby; she's three at this point. But when I put her to bed at like seven forty-five, and I just don't even want to get back up again, you know, cause I, she lays down in my bed with me. So, and she's warm and smells good. <laughs> I'm like, I'll just stay with her. And then if I do that, cause sometimes I'll just fall asleep with her. 
And I wake up at four o'clock in the morning. I'm like, this is crazy town. You cannot get up at four o'clock in the morning. But maybe I should. That sounds so much better. It's so healthy for you. Except, it's really the yeah, natural cycle. Makes... Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks again for having me, you all. And I hope you get a good night's sleep tonight. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Mary, I appreciate it so much. I really do. And hopefully we'll get you back on to talk about all the things we didn't talk about on this one. <laughs> all the things. That sounds great. That sounds great. <laughs> any other questions? Um, cool. Well, everybody who's listening, thank you so much for listening. And have a good night, morning, day, wherever you are. Oh, yeah. I'm going to say one thing. Please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, especially if you really liked this episode and or you want to hear more. Or Spotify, wherever you listen to your episodes, please definitely leave a review. Uh, that will help us know what material to pump out for you guys. Yeah. And cool. is this going to go on? Is this going to go on YouTube? Do you think? No. Maybe. 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 We have not bridged the YouTube gap yet, but we are thinking about it. (laughs) And we are now recording video. So if it goes on a platform like YouTube where you can ask questions underneath, I will try to answer them for you all. So, Oh, excellent. We will post about it on our Instagram feed. So if you have questions for Mary, maybe we could go there. Yes. Go there and tag me. Good idea. Okay. 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 Good idea. We'll do that. Okay. And we will try and get it on YouTube. That's one of those things I have to have my 12 year old help me with. <laughs> oh, wow. Perfect. Okay. That's perfect. Put into work. Delegating yeah. tasks. Yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, everybody. And Thank good you. night. Yes. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at NourishTheLittles and online at NourishTheLittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at ForNutrientSake and online at ForNutrientSake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. expressed in this episode are those of the guests. They do not reflect Corey and I's and Modern Ancestral Mama's personal views and opinions. We do not take responsibility for any ideas expressed during the podcast interview. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.